Hi, and welcome to this week's LGBT Wellness Podcast. Each week, LGBT HealthLink, a program of Centerlink, brings you a roundup of some of the biggest LGBTQ wellness stories from the past week. Get ready to listen and learn lots. Hi, everyone. For those who are just joining us, this is part two of our three-part interview. We are here with Anthony Foe, who is with Stanford University. Um, they are the uh, LGBTQ community engagement partner of the All of Us Research Initiative. And we are also joined um, by members from two of the LGBT centers that are working with All of Us, um, the first being LGBT Detroit. So uh, I'm going to pass things over to Evan Killingsworth, who um, has a question for Anthony. Hello, and thank you for having me on. Um, my question is, uh, what are some real life applications like changes to how healthcare is provided that might encourage LGBTQ folks to want to participate in the, in the study and see that change happen? Evan, thank you so much for your question. And thank you so much for joining from Detroit. I have been to Detroit. It is a fabulous city. Um, so I think in terms of thinking about LGBTQ folks um, and thinking about like real world applications. Um, so a really big announcement, um, I think this would be an appropriate time to, to mention this, is that um, all of us actually just announced that it released its initial genomic data set um, with nearly 100,000 whole genome sequences. When we think about those recipe books, that's a whole lot of recipe books in order to, um, that, that's now available. So I actually went on to the All of Us um, Research Program website, and there's something called the Research Projects Directory, and basically it allows anyone um, to go on and browse around to see what projects are sort of underway from a research perspective. And I looked at some of the, um, I just did a search on LGBTQ or LGBT, and number one, I was happy to see um, some familiar names in terms of other queer researchers whom I know personally, um, that come from the community and have excellent research reputations. Um, I will mention that because the genomic data was only just released yesterday, um, it hasn't been available to them yet. So none of the projects were specifically focused on um, genomics. Um, however, um, if you look at like sort of what was available to them, um, all of the current research projects use more kind of aggregated demographic data to ask research questions. So for example, um, there's a really fabulous geriatric researcher named Jason Flatt and their colleague Scott Moore, and they are exploring differences in physical and psychosocial health um, in healthcare use um, in, in queer individuals living with Parkinson's disease compared with people who are not living with Parkinson's disease. And so you see these types of research studies for the first time where we're trying to basically look at our communities and potentially diseases that affect many people, but we, we might have slightly different sort of challenges. Um, as Corey pointed out before, we've had challenges in terms of um, family building, but when you think about a queer person with Parkinson's disease, it might be a very different experience than a queer, like a non-queer person uh, with Parkinson's disease. So, um, so in terms of thinking about like the genomic data that's not been available yet, it's just becoming available now. And I'm sure you're going to see it many more uh, uh, research projects actually on the research directory. So you can browse it yourself. Um, but I want to give you a little taste based on your question of like, what is what are the possibilities? Um, so if you have these type of data, 
um, genomic data combined with these other types of data that I had mentioned uh, before, what can you do? So one area that I'm very passionate about, it would be cancer risk. Um, so we know that cancers can be inherited across generations. So you may know someone in your own families or loved ones or your chosen families that have cancer and then their mom had cancer or their uncle had cancer. You kind of see this like happening in the family. That's just sort of the inherited piece of it. We also know that genes that are associated with cancer might interact with the environment. So the environment plays a role. Okay, so you might have a gene that increases your risk for cancer, but other environmental factors, something that you might get exposed to increases your risk of cancer more. And the number one environmental factor, it's more of a behavior, is cigarette smoking. So it's one of the first questions we always ask folks, like, do you, do you smoke cigarettes? Because you have a really strong family history of cancer, you might turn on one of those genes and cause yourself to have um, cancer. So that's important. So in terms of thinking about LGBT communities, I think it's important to look at things like cancer risk, right? So understanding risk could help better inform queer folks um, to maybe change their behavior and not smoke, but also um, change their um, lifestyles in terms of the food they eat, et cetera. And just be aware so that we as clinicians are engaging with higher risk individuals to make sure that we're doing screening at really good intervals. Okay, so one area that I can think of as an example is um, transgender folks um, who are about to start taking hormones. And clinicians like myself always are talking to folks about getting screened at a, an early enough interval so that we make sure that if you do have cancer that we can do something about it. And so one of the things that would be great is, um, for example, informing guidelines for gender affirming hormone therapy with more information about genetic risk for cancer. This doesn't stop anyone from getting um, hormones, but it might better inform a clinician to have a conversation with a patient and say, hey, you have a really, really strong family risk here, but if you do genomic testing, we look in, into this, we know that people with a specific gene that can potentially cause a specific type of cancer might be a little bit higher. So let's maybe, maybe we should inform a guideline for trans folks that would uh, recommend that you get screened sooner than later, right? It's something that we kind of paid a closer attention to. So that's one kind of specific um, area uh, of cancer risk. Another possibility in terms of AOU genomic data would be um, what I talked about earlier, this area of precision medicine and pharmacogenetics. Are there certain drugs that are gonna work better in your body based on your, your, your genetic makeup than someone else. Many years ago, actually this research has been around for some time. It's super fascinating. We know that entire racial groups, entire populations respond differently because of their different genetic makeup than others. And the example that is often used here is Chinese people. And so there's this, the majority of people in China are what we call the Han majority, H-A-N the Han majority of Chinese people because China was actually a melting pot, little Chinese history, right? And so we've got all these different people in China and then eventually, um, because not all Asian people look alike, right? <laughs> uh, 
um, even though people think that, um, but not all Chinese people are the same. Eventually what happened was we got to kind of like a majority of like, what was that genetic makeup? And the Han people actually, a number of studies have shown super fascinating, metabolize, use drugs in their body, process those drugs very differently than other races in the world. Why this is, we don't know. We just know that there is this variation and it's not just one drug, it's a number of drugs, okay? So this research was sort of some of the beginning kind of foundational research around precision medicine to say pharmacogenetics is a thing. And if we can think about an individual and their genetic makeup and how they might metabolize a drug or use that drug in their body differently than the next person, that could really, really make a difference in terms of, as I mentioned earlier, something like cancer treatment to cure their cancer. But let's bring it to an LGBTQ scenario. To bring it back to transgender, gender affirming care, you've got hormones. And what I know as a clinician who prescribes hormones is that not everyone responds the same to hormones, right? So you start people on hormones and some people um, get kind of secondary sex characteristics really quickly. Some people, when we start doing the numbers, even in terms of the absorption of the estrogen or the testosterone in their body, and I check their blood, it's different, right? And other um, sort of effects in the body when I measure certain things like how many red blood cells they're creating when they get a little testosterone in their body is different from one individual to the next. And unfortunately right now in terms of transgender medicine, we don't completely know why this person is gonna respond very differently to a dose, a certain dose versus another person. And we often think about with any kind of medicine, what's the right dose? What's the right frequency? How, how often should you be doing it? In the case of transgender medicine, we've got a lot of different doses and we've got a lot of different frequencies. And actually we also got a lot of different routes because we've got patches, we've got pills, we've got syringes where we can put it into a muscle or you know into your fat in terms of injecting that hormone. And so a genomic pharmacogenetics approach to looking at health outcomes, not even disease risk, but saying, hey, I want to maximize the transgender, gender-affirming health outcomes for this person. And if I better understand their genetic makeup and how they're going to respond to a hormone than another person who might have a different um, genomic response, that would really be a boon and a wonderful thing for transgender health medicine. So those are a couple of examples of the possibilities. I'm gonna disclaim that those possibilities are things that I would love to see. And I can think of so many, many, many more, um, but these kind of, I hope these give you kind of like some ideas about what is the possibility to combine this genomic data and thinking about the diversity that's within our own populations and what our needs are, what our health needs are and that are most important to us. Thank you so much for that answer. Thank I mean, you, Evan. Yeah, thank you, Evan, for, for joining us and for, for asking the terrific question. Um, now, one thing that you mentioned, Evan, which I thought was um, was a good uh, a good segue here, is that um, you know the idea of getting more LGBTQ people involved in this in this research, and of course, that is one of our hopes um, in doing this podcast and having this conversation is you know that folks will sign up, be part of this initiative, and therefore be counted and boost the the amount of research that um, that researchers can do on LGBT uh, health. 
So having said all of that, you know, obviously there, I mean, there's going to be some questions going through people's heads as they're considering this. Um, we know that privacy is a really big issue in general for folks, but especially with LGBTQ folks talking about our health, um, that's a big concern. Also, medical mistrust, we know, is, is a big issue, um, especially for LGBTQ people of color. There's a lot of historical incidences that we can talk about and current present day things that make people not always super trustful of public health institutions, healthcare facilities. So the idea of signing up and giving people our healthcare data may be a little bit uh, scary. So tell us a little bit about um, you know, what AOU is doing to make sure that um, this type of issue is addressed, people's privacy is protected, um, and for folks who may be thinking you know, they're, they're interested, but they, they may have some concerns, let's save them a trip to the FAQ page and <laughs> discuss a little bit about how these issues are being um, covered. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that this is privacy and safety are always a really important um, set of topics to discuss when anyone is participating in any kind of research study. And especially, as you mentioned, Corey, um, LGBTQ people, um, communities of color that have been very historically and very well documented, at least now. Um, I think there's been a lot of mea culpas in large research institutions about um, the harm that's been done to our communities. So I, I wanted to mention that I recently participated in a special interest group for sexual and gender minority health at the NIH. Um, and this is basically, it brings together researchers like myself um, um, who are queer health researchers themselves and doing queer health research. Um, and ALU provided um, uh, as a follow-up to that discussion where a lot of privacy issues and discussions around this um, came up. So what's reassuring is that the folks that are doing this research are concerned about privacy and concerned about protecting their um, communities and their participants. Because for a lot of us who are in queer health research, we see research as how we advocate for our communities, um, not how we exploit our communities. So we wanna make sure that absolutely our communities are protected. So um, in terms of AOU and specifically what AOU does to protect participant information, um, AOU first follows a strict uh, security protocol um, and set of processes. Um, the overarching aim, as I understand it, is for security models within the All of Us Research Program to ensure that data is protected and used ethically and responsibly. It is ostensibly written that way, okay? So when a participant first enrolls in the All of Us Research Program, they do enter some pieces of content information, but this content information is restricted to a very limited group of people. Almost immediately, participants are assigned a number to maintain their privacy. So no longer is it Anthony Foe, it's basically a participant that is assigned a, a, a number. So it's kind of like de-identified, if you will. Um, and I can tell you that I am actually an All of Us research participant. I decided to uh, join the group and I enrolled myself and I went all the way to provide my blood sample as well as my urine sample. Um, because I wanted to, I believe in the program, but I also wanted to sort of test the program myself and, and, and know what that experience was like. And I can say that I felt very reassured in terms of my confidentiality and my, my privacy. So I think it's important for folks to understand all of us um, in terms of the researchers that are coming to work with the data that is given to all of us um, by our communities. Researchers don't have access to any contact information for participants. And actually only that de-identified number, if you will, um, gets aggregated into there. And so basically um, 
the sort of identity is basically protected in that regard. Additionally, researchers cannot download any data to their local computers. All analysis um, of data has to be done on the All of Us research platform. It's called the Researcher Workbench. And in order to be even have access to the Researcher Workbench, there's a number of safeguards that are put in place. And quite frankly, they are um, security barriers, really, to make sure that the, the people who are actually on the workbench are qualified to be on the workbench and checks and balances are in place. So AOU requires all researchers who seek access to um, the program to first register for the program themselves. They actually have to come from a legitimate organization and the organization actually has to be qualified as well. Um, all researchers have to do an ethics training and sign an agreement that, to a code of conduct for responsible data use. Um, there are regular audits of researchers, um, like the workspace descriptions where basically you have, basically, it's like, what, are, what research are you doing um, on the workbench to ensure that there are no um, project descriptions that describe ill-intentioned or potentially stigmatizing concerns. And I say that language, I think it's important because AOU thought about this and they said, if you have anything that is potentially ill-intentioned or potentially even stigmatizing, it cannot, you cannot do this research. And regular audits are being performed to ensure that that is not happening. If any such project is identified, the program can freeze or deactivate if necessary a researcher's workspace. And if you are found to be out of compliance with any kind of data use and the agreements that were signed upon registration, then you will be picked out quite frankly, and stops from doing any additional research and potentially future research as well. So that's like sort of the internal audit side. There's also a community engaged research like external audit, um, which basically I had mentioned there's this research projects directory is what it's called, where anyone can go on the AOU website and go to the research projects directory and browse through every research project that is active currently. So every researcher, their profile, and a description of the project and the community. All of us, any of us can flag any project for review at any time. This is a really, really important bridge to build between the research project itself, the research program, basically saying I'm internally auditing, you've agreed to all this, we've set up all these kind of safeguards from the, the word go, but down the line, it's also the community is also auditing. And so anyone can do that. And that's a, it's a really, really powerful safeguard. So the other, the, the last piece of this in terms of thinking about um, LGBTQ people and the providing of these type of data, it's a precious thing that, um, that we're doing um, to participate and to say that we want to provide these data. Um, I, I do think that it goes to that health equity issue. It's important to make sure that we are helping a national program to understand our communities, but part of that is also providing our data to, to do that. Um, and so one of the other pieces that um, we're doing that's I think is really important AOU and why AOU engage organizations like Centerlink and PrideNet is to better understand how to have conversations with our community in terms of queer people, as well as how to do the research right. So one of the things that Stanford did um, is actually put together some recommendations um, for researchers and how to work with sexual orientation and gender identity data. 
Um, uh, and this may be researchers that are very, very interested in advocating for the communities, but may have less experience doing it. So they went to, you know, um, the community and they went to also some technical experts um, in research around sexual orientation and gender identity who had devoted their lives to advocacy for um, sexual and gender minority people and LGBT people to make this happen in, in, a, in a good way. Great, thank you. And that's, I mean, it's great that folks can go on and see, you know, what, what the data is being used for, I think, even though, um, you know, not, not all of us are going to put in the time to do so, the fact that it's available um, is definitely uh, reassuring. And, you know, it just brings up another really great thing about this initiative, which is that it's opening the door for all sorts of different research. It's not, it's not a, a study, right? It's a collection of data that people can use to answer all sorts of different questions. Um, so we're, it'll be, you know, years and years of, of research coming out that's based on, on this initiative um, for people to look Yes, thank you for saying that. that. I'm sorry, like I should have clarified that, you know, like when we think about all of us data, we're, we're talking about the collection of data to be used in many, many different mm -hmm. research studies. Um, and in terms of, of queer folks, like when I went on the, the recently on the research structure, I think there's at least nine currently. I wanna see like hundreds, if not thousands of research study um, that are devoted to and focused on LGBTQ people um, in that research directory as in the years to come. So that's really kind of like the power of this also. We collect these data and we lend our data about ourselves, quite frankly, so that we can empower uh, researchers, queer health researchers, to ask new questions that will ultimately benefit queer communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we have a lot of researchers who, um, you know, follow follow the, the blog and the podcast. So if you're if you're a researcher and you're listening, then that's great information as well. Remember folks, this is just part two of our part three series. Part three is available now, so you can go ahead and listen to our dramatic and fabulous conclusion to our interview. And you can also learn more about all of us at joinallofus.org.